What a joy it is to be together with the children of God this morning. Over 2,000 years ago, in a town called Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem, a teenage girl named Mary gave birth to a baby boy named Jesus. This is when and where and how heaven invaded earth. The Word became flesh. Even though we try to change it now, our calendars are divided historically on this day between B.C. and A.D. By lineage, he was the son of David, but by divinity, he is the son of God. And now here we are in 2023. How in the world is it already 2023? How is it that this past week on our American calendar, we've already celebrated Thanksgiving, and in just a few short weeks, it will be 2024? You can hardly finish carving the turkey before Black Friday deals start falling off the shelves. This is the season of shop until you're broke or credit card debt mounts to a sustainable level. It's a season where we travel. In fact, uh, my boys and I traveled over a thousand miles this last week uh, to and from my parents' house. Um, And so before it gets too crazy, because as Tucker said, this time of year, uh, our calendars just seem to fill up. And it's different for every family, but it is a busy time of year. And so before we lose track of why this time of year even exists, I'd like to talk about that this morning. So welcome to West Irwin. Whether you are joining us here live in person or streaming us this morning, uh, it is good to to see your faces. Um, When I was preaching every week, uh, this would be the time of year, actually next Sunday, would be the time of year where I would begin a series centered around a season that falls on the worldwide Christian calendar known as Advent, Um, where Christians around the world would take a period of time to gather and look back, waiting for the arrival of someone that was promised. That's what the word Advent means. It's a season of preparation, a season of anticipation. And personally, just as an individual, not necessarily even related with the greater church, I love following through with that as an individual. I think it's one of the things I've always struggled with is wanting to feel connected to people who have come before me in their faith, wanting to feel and know that connection of those who will come after me. And I love that even for people who don't spend every Sunday in a church, that this time of year they are met with imagery of faith. Whether it be a nativity scene on a church lawn or a courthouse square, whether it be angels hanging from the streetlights, we never know what spark can light a fire. And so I am grateful for whatever piece of the Christian story someone may be exposed to. And so as an individual, I pray for that. I pray that this time of year when people who are not normally exposed to the story of Jesus would hear something that might change their heart. I love this season. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9 as we begin, starting in verse 6. And please refrain from singing out loud. You can sing in your head if you want, but don't do it out loud, just for all of our benefit. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, for us a song is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And here's where I want you to cue in this morning. Prince of Peace. 
Of the greatness of his government and peace, again, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I hope you caught it because I paused and told you to catch it. But that phrase, an increase of his peace, I am convinced that this time of year, that's something we could all use. A little bit more peace in our lives, a little bit less chaos, a little bit more focus, a little bit bit less materialism, a little bit less stuff, and a lot more Jesus. We need his peace. I'm going to say that again because it's important. We need his peace. Because that's the first thing on your outline this morning. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. 329 times in Scripture, it's one of those theological threads that weaves its way from Genesis to Revelation. And it's one of my, coming from one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep in the Prince of Peace those whose minds have, whose minds have stayed on you. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petition, give thanksgiving, present your request to God, and what? The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Those are powerful promises. And then you've got the priestly blessing that we receive. May the Lord God Almighty bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord make his countenance turn Toward you and give you what? Give you peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It's a customary greeting in Judaism that conveyed three things just in passing health, wealth, and prosperity. But in the English language, we have a tendency, unfortunately, to reduce complex theological concepts into cliches. So to steal a term from photography, let's widen the aperture of that lens just a little bit. Because shalom is so much bigger than just peace or health, wealth, and prosperity. Shalom in its fullness in the, in the Hebrew language means complete wholeness. It means fullness. It means perfect harmony. Shalom is the Garden of Eden before the fall. Shalom is the original blessing that we were intended to receive before the original sin that we now live under. Shalom is the restoration of all things back to its original intent. And we get a picture of shalom at the very end of time, this alternate reality that, that from us, from what our reality is, that the Bible refers to as heaven. On the other side of this space-time continuum that we're living in. And when we get there, the lion is going to lay down with the sheep. And there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more curses, no more sorrow, and no more shame. There will only be shalom. So this morning I would like to look at what shalom is and why it should matter to us. Because it is a Hebrew word, but it is a Hebrew word that our Savior, who was a Hebrew, used throughout the New Testament. So we need to double down. I want to double down on one very simple idea before we move any further. We, again, have this tendency in our Western context to think of that word peace 
as something internal and emotional. And, and we have to be careful with our own view of the definition of that word when we're applying it to Scripture. Because while it is a dimension of peace, no argument there, that we can have peace in the midst of a storm, that we can experience a peace that passes understanding, peace is more than just an emotion. And so if you forget everything else I say today, which chances are many of you will, and that's okay, remember this statement. Peace is Jesus. Isaiah refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And so the way we experience shalom in the closest way that we can in 2023 is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of you are familiar with somebody, maybe not by name, but by his probably his most famous work. A man by the name of Eugene Peterson, who wrote over 50 books, also wrote a paraphrase of the Bible that is now 30 years old, believe it or not. And so we hear this word modern language, and it's not the language that my children speak. I can promise you that. That's some kind of foolish, I don't know what, that I need a translator for every now and then. But he wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. So when I say that, many of you are now familiar. He spoke about Jesus in this way. He said, Jesus is the dictionary by which we as believers look up the meaning of words. Eugene Peterson had a very unique talent, he passed away in 2018, of putting things in a way that made my head hurt, but not in a way that I couldn't understand. So let me read it to you again. Jesus is the dictionary by which we look up the meaning of words. Jesus is the lens by which we as Christians view our entire life. He is, the, he is the one through which creation happened. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the beginning and end. He is the definition of peace. He is shalom with skin on. And so if we want to understand shalom, we have to look at the life of Jesus. So five snapshots this morning that you'll see there on your outline. And the first we begin with even the, the pre-Jesus. A snapshot that we see in Luke chapter 2, about 700 years after Isaiah's prophecies of the Prince of Peace that we read together to begin, shepherds are watching their flocks by night, and this choir of angels show up, and they say, glory to God in the highest, peace and goodwill toward men. So that first blank this morning, shalom is the good will of God. Psalm chapter 84 says, No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly before him. The boys and I were on our way to church this morning, and a song called Psalm 84 came on on the radio, and it was just one of those winks. A reminder for me, knowing that this is something I would be referencing this morning, of the goodwill of God. Psalm chapter 23, which most of us are familiar with by heart, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Shalom is the favor of God. It is the original blessing. Now, the second New Testament picture we see of shalom was actually 12 years in the making, a miracle that we see in Mark chapter 5. Jesus is in the middle of what we would call like a biblical era mosh pit. And so this is just crammed in there. So this woman's Again, just using more modern terms, she's kind of crowd surfing her way towards Jesus. She's fighting her way through the crowd. 
And when she gets to him, Jesus feels this surge of power leave his body. And he says something to her that he does not say anywhere else in any of the Gospels. And so anytime that happens, I have a, an antenna that goes up. He does it twice in what we're talking about this morning, actually. He says a, a word, a singular word to her that he never, ever says any other place. He called her daughter. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter is a term of endearment, and I think through his compassion, through his empathy, he was moved by her act of faith. Simply by touching him, that belief that she would be healed. But not just a physical healing, because that's what's so easy to see on the outside. Because when he says, go in peace... We have to understand what that word means in context to what she has been going through. For, for, for upwards of 12 years, <clears throat> excuse me, this would have been a multidimensional healing for her. She would have been considered unclean and been ostracized and marginalized and not have been able to have a relationship with the people around her. And so by telling her to go in peace, he has not just healed her body. This would have restored her place within her community, within her relationships. So while Shalom heals us physically, and he had healed, healed her physically. This peace that he offered her, it restored her. Shalom is healing and restoration. That's number three. Actually, that was number two. So, number three, this third view of Shalom that we see in the New Testament through Jesus is the woman who breaks the alabaster jar that we see in Luke chapter seven. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, before we move on, we realize that in this moment of her worshiping the Savior, she gets canceled by the religious leaders of her time. They say, it's a waste of money what you've done, that we could have used that. That's a year's wages. It could have been used for a better purpose. But Jesus comes to her defense, as he often does, right? He restores her dignity, and then he says something that isn't even what she was asking for. When you read the Gospels, I think we see that often, where Jesus gives in response something that we didn't know we needed that they didn't know they needed. Most of us will typically come to God with symptoms. God, can you help me with this situation, this, this momentary thing? But God wants to do something much deeper in our hearts. We want God to solve small momentary problems instead of cultiva cultivating something deeper in our life that can solve that problem and many more, but forces us to truly change. We're not asking for change, we're asking for relief. I want things to still be the way they are, but let me get out of this moment. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to grumble among themselves, saying, who is this who even forgives sins? Only God can do that. And in verse 50, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peace can also be seen. Shalom can also be seen as forgiveness. Shalom is forgiveness. 
That's number three. So it wasn't what she was asking for, but Jesus in turn said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those same people who were calling for Jesus' head said, this is crossing the line because only God can forgive sins. So in this instance, this peace that he offered was forgiveness. So if you're tracking so far, number one, shalom was good with the goodwill of God. Shalom is healing. Shalom is forgiveness. And just as an aside, this catalyst that we see in the woman that started this whole thing was an act of worship. This anointing of her feet was an act of worship. This worship, the net result was your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the fourth New Testament view we see of the Prince of Peace, of Shalom, is in this storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is taking a nap, and his disciples come down, and they say something to him that, in my mind, if I try to put myself into the shoes of Jesus, I'm just shaking my head. Because their statement to him is, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Again, think just for a moment, if you can, to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. In my mind, you've got to be kidding me. You have been with me for three years. You have walked beside me. You have seen the miracles I have done. And you're asking me if I care about you? But in a crisis, people say things we sometimes like to put back in our mouths. We, we change because fear becomes the overriding factor in our life. Sometimes crisis can bring out the worst in us and people start playing the blame game. We want to blame somebody else for everything that we do. And so here they are saying, Jesus, do you even care if we drown? And I love what Jesus does because it's not what I would do. And so it's something I need to remember. Jesus doesn't grab a bucket and start bailing out the boat. Jesus doesn't grab an oar and start rowing to try and get them to safety before the boat goes under. Instead, he stands up in the boat, he rebukes the wind, and he says, Peace, be still. Now, I know in a room this big and with people who are watching online that there are storms in our life where the wind is blowing and the waves are crashing all around us. There are marriages that are struggling. There are relationships that are falling apart. There are workplaces where the moment you walk inside, your blood pressure is about to make the monitor explode. There are difficult seasons with our kids, whether they are young children, teenagers, or adults, because let's face it, there is no manual on how to handle every single situation right. And we need grace and forgiveness a lot, whether our kids are too or 80. So while we don't have all the answers, we have a Prince of Peace, and somehow, some way, there has to come a moment in our lives where we stop letting situations, where we stop letting waves dictate how we respond, where we stand up in the middle of a situation and say, I will not let these waves determine my response. We stand in the gap as peacemakers, as grace givers, And what Jesus did in this situation as the Prince of Peace, shalom for him in this moment was exercising authority with humility. That was number four. Shalom is exercising authority with humility. That's what Jesus does here. He did not take it sitting down. And sometimes we have to stand up. There is a Jewish rabbi who is also a family systems therapist by the name of Edwin Friedman, and he talked about leadership as being a non-anxious presence. Each one of us have a certain energy that we put off. When you're anxious, 
people know. When you're anxious, your dog knows. I mean, it's just, it's obvious when we walk into a room, we have an, a, a feeling about us. And so, honestly, ask yourself that question. When you walk into a room, does the anxiety level go up or down? Dr. Martin Luther King said, let's not be thermometers that just reflect the room temperature. Let's be thermostats that shift the temperature of the room. So as I look at our children, as I look at our teenagers, I have that prayer for them as well. That may God raise you up when you walk into a room to be a non-anxious presence. That does not let the situation that you're facing affect your relationship with your Savior. Don't, we cannot allow ourselves to be changed and blown by the wind simply by circumstance. We cannot allow that to change our relationship with God. Peace, be still. And the last view that we see in the New Testament of Shalom is found in John chapter 20. It's after the resurrection. Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, not once, but twice, my peace be with you. And then he does something curious that we see nowhere else in any of the other Gospels, at least worded this way. He breathed on them. It's a very curious thing. Sometimes when you read in the Bible, you're, you're reading it again. You just kind of blow through it and you don't think about it because you're working on your uh, Bible in a year and I got to get through seven chapters today. And he breathed on them. Well, I breathed on a lot of people. I probably shouldn't have when I had COVID, but it happened. So we move on. But Jesus breathed on them with intent. There's a lot about it it doesn't understand, but after it says that, he said, and they received the Holy Spirit. This was a changing of the guard. Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, and so in this precursor to Pentecost, where it's not just God with us, in this moment now it's God for us. It's God in us with these disciples. So the simplest way that we could say that is, When he says, peace be with you twice, and he gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit, shalom is spirit-filled. Shalom is spirit-filled. The internal pressure of the Holy Spirit within us has to be greater than the external pressures around us. Our conviction to follow this Holy Spirit within us has to be greater than whatever repercussion we will face as a result of of following that call. See, the cross is the only thing that saves us. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that gets us there. We cannot save ourselves no matter what we do. In fact, and this is the last blank on your outline this morning, if you leave the cross out of the equation, all that we're left with is a social club. It's a social gospel. It's a gathering of people who have something in common. And we have clubs all over this county and community for just that. Do you like chess? There's a place for you. Do you like being a senior citizen? There's a place for you. Or we do all sorts of things together. You may not like it, but you may be one. And that's, we're all hopefully going to get there someday. So without the cross, we're left with a hollow gospel. If our relationship with God is off, our view of how we see ourselves is off. Our view of how we see other people is off. And now our view with our, our relationship with others is off. So, Three more things this morning as we close, very quickly. Number one, what's the point? 
How, how do we live with that shalom, that peace that passes all understanding, that peace that brings fullness and wholeness and completeness, or at the very least, how do we get as close as we can here on this earth? Number one, we confess our sin. First John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And let's face it, we may deceive ourselves, but chances are we're really not fooling anyone around us, are we? From the youngest of age, even children can see when the wool is being pulled over their eyes. John flips the coin, though, and then he says, But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does sin have to do with peace? Well, the theologian Cornelius Platinga describes sin as the opposite of shalom. He calls it the culpable disturbance of shalom. So just for the sake of thinking, sin, from that perspective, is the disturbance of the peace that God wants us to have. Now, there are a lot of definitions of sin, and I'm not saying that that is the only one, but it is a part of it because it has changed the dynamic. God did not intend for us to live in sin. He intended us for, li- to, for us as his created to live in wholeness, in fullness, in completeness. So the way we get back to that as human beings is by be ma- being made right through the blood of Jesus. We confess our sins and we receive that, that forgiveness that we are offered Here's the problem and the catch with that, though. Sometimes we're willing to receive the forgiveness that God gives us, but we really don't think that blood is powerful enough for us to forgive ourselves. And I know every person in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. You believe that God has forgiven you, but you believe to an even greater extent that that sin has still stained you. And it has not. When we cannot accept the forgiveness of God to its fullest extent, then we limit the blood of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's not good enough for my sin. It's not powerful enough for what I've been through. We can receive forgiveness, but it's much harder to forgive ourselves. Let me just challenge you with this. Once we confess our sin, we we come before the throne and we ask for forgiveness. It is gone, it is done, it is finished. You don't have to keep talking about it or dwelling in it or letting it burden you. It doesn't mean that it doesn't resurface. But it is not held against us by our Creator and our Savior. So, what room do we have to hold it against ourselves? We have two choices. We repress it, act like it doesn't exist, deny it, try to go about our existence, but that fractures our relationship with God. So, either we repress it or we confess it. Number two, we confess our sins. And number two, we love our enemy. You see it right there. So, just, okay, love your enemy. Peace be with you, go with you. you know, y'all get that, right? No, that's, that's, that's even harder to love our enemies. So we have to ask ourselves questions like this. Do I have a seed of bitterness in my heart? Do I have a grudge I can't let go of? Is there a root of jealousy? Is there any forgiveness for people who have wronged me? And I know, I know because I'm there, where I have this gut reaction version of me that says, ah, uh, you don't know. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. Who am I saying you to? Am I saying it to you or am I saying it to him? One of my favorite modern authors uh, is a guy by the name of Louis Giglio, and he wrote a book 
called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. Now, our church staff would be familiar with that because I used that as a jumping-off point for a study that we did for about a month uh, over here in the office building on Tuesdays. But in that book, he talks about the idea of holding on to things. And he says, if you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart, you're giving the enemy a seat at your table. If you are holding a grudge or gossiping about somebody behind their back, you're giving the enemy a seat at your table. If you hang on to an offense, if you let fear dictate your decisions, you are giving the enemy a seat at your table. You are giving him a place in your life. If you fail to forgive others, if you fail to forgive yourself, you are giving the enemy a seat at your table. Get rid of that seat at your table. Because if we give the enemy an inch, he will take that and a million more. And lastly, praise. If we want to find that peace with God, this praise that we offer God, whether it be on a Sunday morning or I certainly hope when we leave here, that it continues throughout the week, it doesn't always just have to be a praise for what is today. It can also be a praise for what is to come, what, to use a biblical terminology, prophetic praise, the praise for what is to come. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering upon the thousands, the 10,000 times 10,000 angelic voices. They circled the throne and the living creatures and elders and they sang a mighty chorus saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature, listen to this, every creature say, In heaven, and on earth, and they sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The day is coming when every person, every nation, every tribe, every language will surround the throne of God and worship him. So, shalom is not just a prophetic picture of a future tense, a future reality. It is happening when we worship, when we look in the mirror, when we have individual one-on-one vertical worship with God. It also happens when we're here and we get wrapped up in things like there's a lot of other voices that are being heard right now. God doesn't need mine. Are you minimizing the creation of God when you say that, when you think that, when we feel that? Each one of us could not be more unique if we tried. God created us. We are created in his image We were not mistakes, and we were created to praise God. So I don't care what you think your voice sounds like, and I don't care what your neighbor, which probably thinks it's worse than you do. God created our voices to lift, be lifted to him because he loves the sound. And it's not for us. It's for him. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It's talking about God being in our midst, a mighty one who will save. It says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. You see, shalom, peace. We often think we have to be up on a mountain somewhere where it's quiet, where we can just take in this creation that God has for us. It's for us. But peace is not the absence of chaos. Peace is the presence of Jesus. It's not mine. 
It's not attributed to anyone. It's a sentiment that is true because Scripture tells us it is. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He offered peace over and over and over to people that were willing to receive it. But we have to be willing to receive it. Lord, give us a revelation of what is happening in the world around us and let us find peace in you. If we as a church can encourage you this morning, pray for you, or help you begin your relationship, your walk with God for the very first time by receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit to be spirit-filled in baptism. Sing with us as we stand and praise our God and our Creator.